0: Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So Rory Scoville is my guest today. And this is, this is a fun one. Rory's a stand-up comedian. He's an actor. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you may have heard my interview a few weeks ago with Payman Benz. Payman's a, a comedy director. And Payman's done a lot of work uh, for lots of shows. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Last Man on Earth. But if you listen to that interview, you heard us talk a lot about this new show, that payment had just done called Robbie. It's about a basketball coach in Georgia that is trying to get out of his dad's shadow, who is uh, this kind of legendary basketball coach in town. So Robbie is actually a show that was developed and written and stars Rory Scoville, today's guest. And I just, I was so thrilled to get to talk to him because I really, really enjoyed Robbie. I thought it was a really good show. And it's interesting, you know, Rory talks about it, uh, in the interview here. But it's a show that Comedy Central greenlit. They they spent all this money to, to make a pilot. Then they said, yeah, give us seven more. We love this show. And then, as often happens in the entertainment industry, people changed over. the The mission of the channel changed. And all of a sudden, there were eight episodes of this amazing show that Comedy Central didn't really feel like fit with their lineup anymore. So they decided to put it up on their YouTube channel just so that people could see it. And it's, it's hanging out there now, so it's free. You can go watch it. It's a really funny show. It's a really quirky show. It's a really, it's a, it's a cool show. Go check it out. Co-starring along with Rory Scoville, Bo Bridges plays his father, the basketball coach. I mean, Bo freaking Bridges. How cool is that? Mary Holland plays his girlfriend. And Sashir Zameda, I think she steals the show. She is incredible in this. Sashir plays the mother of Robbie's child, who he doesn't learn until I think the first or second episode that he even had a son. And all of a sudden, at ten years old, he meets his son and well, you'll see what happens. But it's a it's also a show that dives into a lot of issues that get associated with the South. They're not necessarily Southern issues, but they get kind of stereotyped as, as Southern issues. Race is a big one. There's a backdrop of race throughout the entire show that I found really interesting, especially sort of the times we're in right now with, with Black Lives Matter really being at the forefront of everybody's mind. And the other piece of it that's really prominent is religion. Rory's character, Robbie, coaches this church league basketball. It's for a Catholic church. There's a priest in the show. There are scenes set in the church a fair amount. And it's unclear, you know, Robbie doesn't come across as super churchy, I guess. I think it's revealed at one point he's not even baptized. <laughs> so maybe he's not churchy at all. But it's also not, the church piece of it isn't a punchline. It's not It's not making fun of religious people, much like the race stuff. It's just kind of there in the background. And that was fascinating to me. And it was fun to, to talk to Rory about some of these issues. And, you know, we get into... He and I have a very similar background in terms of growing up in very Catholic families and kind of drifting away from the church. And I talk about that with him in this interview. And since I talked to Rory, I've been thinking more about sort of the church and its its relationship to my life. And just trying to think of what that moment was where I went from being somebody that didn't go to church with any regularity, but still basically considered myself a Catholic, to the point where I said, You know i I can't identify as this anymore this this isn't a part of my identity, and there's a couple of things that come to mind i I, I talked to Rory about sort of the the church i I grew up in and the surety of the teachers around me and the priests around me that they were a hundred percent convinced, or at least this is what they projected to us that everything they were telling us was the Word of God was the truth, and there was no room for interpretation or critical thinking or or questioning. This is what the church was teaching you. This is what you needed to believe in order to be a Catholic. So that was a turnoff. But some of the stuff that I didn't share with Rory that I've thought about sort of afterwards, one is, of course, being in Boston at the time when the church sex abuse crisis was breaking. That was very influential and just sort of realizing initially it was, you know, one or two priests here or there. And then that story just continued to unravel over the course of a couple of months or maybe even a year or so where you suddenly realized that this wasn't just one or two bad apples, so to speak, but that this was a systemic problem in the clergy, that there were many, 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 many priests for many years that were abusing young parishioners and that this was well known. It was well documented. And it was kind of hidden under the rug. And that felt hypocritical to me. That felt like a a dereliction of duty. And that definitely caused a big rift between me and the Catholic Church. But then in in 2012, my wife and I took a trip to Italy. And I was really excited to go to the Vatican. And I was thinking, you know what? Like, maybe this will be the thing that restores my faith. Maybe just being at, at the center of the church and you know, seeing these beautiful altars and the Sistine Chapel and, you know, maybe maybe that will alter my perception. And really quite the opposite happened. That when you go around, not just Rome, but we went to Florence and we went to Tuscany and, and you realize that in some of these villages that are a thousand years old or, you know, in Florence or in Rome, the church is the most beautiful building in town. It's the most prominent building. It is the most decadent building. And you realize sort of how people were living at that time, that there were peasants that were barely getting by on scraps of food and and living in squalor. And here the clergy were building these temples to to quote-unquote God, but that they just happened to get to live in. And they were commissioning all this incredible artwork, you know, Michelangelo and, you know, carving all this beautiful stonework and, and painting the Sistine Chapel, and then when you go through and, and actually tour the Vatican, and you just see the level of artwork and the amount of it. I mean, it's got to be billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of art in the Vatican. And you just say, wait a second. Like, this doesn't feel like what I was taught. I feel like the good things that I took away from my church experience were loving loving your neighbor, the golden rule, treating others the way you want to be treated. And I couldn't look at these beautiful churches And not just see hypocrisy. And it's the same hypocrisy that I saw with the sex abuse crisis. But here it was stretching back a thousand years or more. And to me, I saw that as all related. I saw that as as one continuum. And it just didn't feel right anymore. And I felt like the best truth that was out there was looking for the good in each other. Looking for the good in the nature around us. And not relying on what somebody else is telling you is the right thing especially when they have a vested interest in that. And I don't know exactly how Rory found his spirituality or, you know, how that evolved. But he and I at least both <laughs> both grew up very Catholic and are both not very Catholic now. But that shadow still looms large. And you see it in Robbie. And it's interesting. And it was interesting to talk to him. So here is my interview with comedian Rory Scoville.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late there. I uh, I went to do it from my computer, and our uh, when I do a call from the computer, it's it's uh it's not great. So then I quickly jumped in my car, and we don't have a good signal on our street. So I drove down <laughs> the street. <laughs> so you're then like then sitting
0: went, in a parking lot somewhere talking to me.
1: I, yeah, I pulled off on the side of the road, but I think I'm gonna find a more neighborhood fun spot. To, okay, but I think I should be good. If you can hear me good now, I'm gonna sit right here, and this should be good.
0: Yeah, no, you sound great. So okay, cool. I feel like we're in just such weird times with this quarantine and stuff. Like, the idea of driving to find a cell signal doesn't seem like the craziest thing that's happening yeah. in the world right now. <laughs> like, how have you been spending the last three months? Just keeping busy, keeping creative, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, well, what's so what's so interesting about the being in the quarantine? I actually get a little bit of adrenaline by having to get into my car to right. go find a so. If I, it's like ooh, something to go and do. I used to, uh, my grandparents who have since passed away, but when they lived in Florida and I would go visit them, uh, my grandfather would willingly go to the grocery store many times a day for any reason to go grab anything. (laughs) I always would give them a hard time and make fun of them. It's only now that I kind of can understand why that was actually fun to do. Right.
0: It's something. (laughs) It gets you out of the house.
1: It's something to get you out of the house and you're just kinda of like, Oh yeah, you get in the car, you just go out for a second, you know, who cares? You know, that's inner you know, you hit a certain age, that's kinda of entertainment. Right. And uh, I guess getting getting in my car to make a phone call is now my entertainment. That's it, um,
0: it's the thing, it's something. Have you gotten like car sick at all driving? like, I've noticed that, that like, if I go over like 50 miles an hour, just because I don't do it that often, like, I'll do it like once every two weeks and be like, whoa, I'm not used to driving.
1: It does. It is. Yeah, I know what you mean. You get out of the rhythm of the things that you used to do that your mind and body became so accustomed to that you stopped noticing that you were even doing it or how you felt about it, right including traffic. Like, even when you sat in traffic, you'd still get aggravated but it was never anything new you just went into autopilot in your brain to yeah. get through it yeah that that hasn't happened so much because we really have not driven many places we went out to joshua tree one weekend nice. uh, to just get away and that just also felt you know so safe it's so spread out i think right. they've had like three cases or something who even knows but yeah we went out there and the drive there, I gotta say, it did feel it did feel kind of strange to be in the car for an extended period of time. When since March, we've maybe been in the car for ten minutes max at right. any given for you know for a pickup or something.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a whole new reality. How you've got a you've got a daughter too, right?
1: Yeah, she a uh, uh, daughter turns five in about a month, less okay. than a month.
0: Yeah, yeah. I got a four year old and seven year old, so it's uh, <laughs> okay. you got your hands well, full, you- right?
1: I'll tell you what, uh, for them to have each other and also at those ages or actually that, that might be the ideal age situation for them playing together and kind of distracting each other. Have you found that to be the case?
0: It definitely helps. Yeah. And and my oldest, you know, she's seven, like she's not at the point yet where she misses her friends. I think like she was in first grade this year and it's still kind of a new thing to like, you know, having play dates or being in school. Like, I think if she were like, you know, A fifth grader or you know middle schooler should be like, "Where are my friends? Why why am I stuck with you guys all the time?" But this has kind of been you know (laughs) the last six years of her life.
1: Around like eleven or twelve, that suddenly they don't want to socialize with their parents anymore. That sounds about right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're not at that point yet, fortunately. But
1: oh, thank God! (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic or not, it's going to be heartbreaking. (laughs) I know.
0: I know. It's coming though. It's fast. (laughs) Right. So prior to all that, like, were you doing stand up and stuff right until stuff started shutting down? Like, do you remember kind of your last yeah. show before everything changed?
1: I, 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 do. I do because I was, uh, I was on a tour following the band tool around with oh, cool. uh, another, another comic, Nick Youssef. And, uh, we, we had, we had done it before in January and the band had found out about it. And so they had given us these all access passes for their whole tour to like, to just get into the shows for free and watch the shows and, and, and hang out with the guitarist, uh, Adam. And so we were, me and Nick Yusuf were on the second leg of that tour following them, uh, up around Boise and Spokane and Portland. Yeah. And our last show, I think was Tuesday, March 10th at, uh, mississippi studios in portland oregon you know we were still doing meet and greets and and selling merch at the oh, merch wow. table after the show and it was kind of interesting because that was still a point where we the public as you remember still weren't being informed as to what to expect or what what was currently happening you you know you kind of still were like oh yeah that thing that's happening in china right uh, i hope they get it together but you know, you like all things. We just think that, well, you know, technology and where we're at, it'll just get fixed and it's not really a thing. So I think we were all joking and we were fist bumping and using hand sanitizer after each person kind of came to the table being like, oh yeah, we're doing, they, they said, all they said to do is wash your hands. Right. So we're washing our hands. And then the next day, uh, the next day we went to the Tool concert and I got to say, I felt so strange being in that venue. It was beautiful to watch the show. We watched the show from the the soundboard front of house to watch the show, which, by the way, if you ever get an experience to watch a concert from the front of house right next to the soundboard and the lighting, uh, it is it's truly the most amazing spot yeah. uh, to be standing. Well, they need the uh, best
0: I mean, view, right? Because they need to see what's going exactly. on. So it's it's best open. Me, and...
1: also, they've made it so that they're capturing the sound, so that they can tweak it. And I've I've just never that was my first time, you know, kind of hearing about that, and then getting to do it was spectacular. But there was a part of me that felt somewhat like, oh, at least I'm on this platform in this roped off area watching this concert, but I could already feel it in my soul that I was like, someone here has it and they're just breathing and we're breathing and it's, it's going to be out there. And I just had this suspicion. And then the very next day, Nick Youssef and I, I'm just going to say Nick. I don't know why I keep saying his full name, <laughs> uh, but Nick and I drove from Portland to Boise and he decided to turn on, Uh, the Joe Rogan podcast where he talked to the CDC guy from Minneapolis uh, or Minnesota. I don't know if it was specifically Minneapolis. And that guy, in a two-hour discussion, laid out how severe things were about to be and his prediction that 400,000 people would die. And it was only then that I looked at Nick and I was kind of like, I think we should just drive home right now because I think the wave is about to really crash and and I don't know that we all are aware of it because no one's really talking about it or saying what it is. That was my first time really going, oh wow, this is this is way more and bigger than I thought.
0: Yeah, and then there were kind of the big cancellation, you know, the NBA called off the season and some of those big yeah. high profile things that you're like, oh, well, this is really.
1: I wish that we, there was uh, Colin Hanks was going to do a documentary about me and Nick following tool around. And had he been doing that, he would have gotten footage of us, you know, in the dressing room with Adam while Adam's being informed that some of the concerts have to be canceled because of the no more than 200 people rule. Right. Um, and so we were witness to that and being like, Oh, that's crazy. That's like so much, money and that's such a what what a hassle you know we were thinking what a hassle we weren't thinking yeah of course you need to cancel we were just like oh that sucks (laughs) and then we nick and i got to boise we went to dinner with uh adam and some of the crew from the the concert and then uh, the next morning, got a text from Adam that the rest of the tour was canceled and they were all going to be flying home. And so me and Nick canceled our show that night and I bought him and I a flight, the very next flight out. We grabbed our stuff, drove as fast as we could to the the rental car place and, and got on the very next flight to just get back to LA. And it's, it's, it's still so surreal. It feels like I left that life. I feel like there is a part of my life that is still in Boise right. on pause, uh, and and I still in such a night. It was such naivete. Believe that I will go back and meet that that person just sitting in Boise waiting to finish that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is wild. And it, so Colin Hanks was was doing this this documentary on you. Like, was he around when he got word that his parents had contracted it? Like, what was? So
1: he did, he did not end up doing the documentary. He oh, okay. was going to. He was he was interested. In, and if he had done it, uh, it would have been a very interesting Uh, he would have never gotten enough material to, to formulate it. But on camera, he would have gotten a, a major band finding out how insane this news is that yeah. things are getting canceled and, and all this. But yeah, we that was the night that it kind of got publicized that his parents had it and being in Australia. And even still, I was like. Oh well, well now I guess it's in Australia. I still wasn't going. Oh, it's for sure in America. Right. It's for sure happening. And that was that was so surreal. It's it's also still so surreal that they recovered and just came back to uh, yeah, America. Tom Hanks was, was like, hosting
0: oh, SNL. Know. You know, a month later.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I guess you're kind of like, oh yeah, I guess you get sick and then you just go back to your normal life. And because you know, at that point, people were like, if you're really old, uh, it'll probably you know, there's there's grave consequences and if the if you're really young and you know you hear that with like the flu and stuff right. and so it isn't like that's a new phrase you've ever heard that you know it's logical that that elderly people or the really young would have the weakest immune systems just by nature so i don't even think hearing that information was enough to really wake people up you can tell now that information has actually been unfortunate for some people's perception of the severity of this thing that they still just think this is a, a sickness that old people get.
0: Yeah. It's kind of swung the other way in these last couple of weeks. It's, it's-
1: swung the other way from, from so many things, reopening and, and you know, unfortunately, and, and this is where my heart and soul is at a torn loss, is that also with the protests that are, that are such an essential part of the evolution of our society to become a better country and a better planet. Even that, you have to look at it and go, well, for sure, that's going to lead to some more cases, right. unfortunately, and uh, a lot of those people, you know, you don't, you just don't know where, how much it's spread. There's a, it's so strange that a part of me is like, well, you know, fighting for justice is one reason to contract it, uh, that I c- I could personally live with. I don't know that I could live with contracting it because I just had to be inside of a Pizza Hut. Right. <laughs> no, I,
0: I completely agree with you. I mean, that like the idea that people are so eager to get out and yeah, like eating a pizza hut or an olive gardener. I'm like, is that yeah. really worth it? Like,
1: and I hate it. It is a conundrum. And I know that that word is, is not even enough to describe it It's almost yeah. comical to use the word conundrum, but it, it is a, a complex equation of, well, how do you try to, you know, salvage what you can of the economy while also caring about people's health? And I, I believe in my soul. It actually is very possible and could have been done simply by communicating the fact that in a world where we may never have a vaccine, you can still win the game by wearing masks and washing your hands and socially distancing. And I think that the fact that that wasn't communicated early on, that there is another way to win, caused all this. And now with the reopening, it's almost like, what was even the point of the first 100 days of quarantine it's all like it's almost all for nothing we got on top of it and then we just gave it all away we we gave away the lead we had the lead
0: yeah no it's crazy and yeah just that i feel like enough people for whatever reason that message hasn't sunk in that the mask is less for you than the people around you like it's you know it's not gonna stop you from getting sick necessarily but the hope is that you might be stopped from spreading i feel like not enough people are getting that and they're walking around with without a mask saying well If I get sick, you know, fuck it, whatever.
1: Yeah, which is so, which is truly so uh, crazy to me. And it's it's a lesson. It's a huge lesson for people to comprehend the spread of information and how dangerous opinionated news. And I mean that on both sides. I feel like anyone with uh, any any even the slightest bit of intellect comes to a point where you realize both sides are playing a game of manipulation and, and misinformation and you realize it's it's detrimental. It's truly unfortunate because it's created this divide right now on who believes what the masks do and who thinks the masks are crazy. I mean, as I just told you, I started taking this seriously after listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, who has now said the masks are meaningless right. to a massive amount of people who really, truly believe him. And I... I don't know anything about science, but I'd like to think I'm smart enough to know that if you and I are outside and we are six feet apart and you have on a mask and I have on a mask, I would bet every dollar I've ever made in my life that neither of us could contract it or or if one of us had it, both of us would not walk away with it. Yeah. We would be, you would be as protected as you could possibly be in a world without a vaccine.
0: Yeah. I think that's the best we can do right now, and just yeah, yeah, take that take that simple level of of protection. I want to ask you just sort of about growing up, and uh, you're from Greenville, South Carolina, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, I I have friends there actually. We we went there maybe a year ago and visited them, and like I, I, so I've been through there a little bit. I, I I don't know it well, but I've spent you know three or four days there. How yeah. did how did growing up in Greenville sort of shape your your perspective, your worldview, your comedic voice?
1: Um, I think that coming from a uh i I couldn't say that these are yeah well i guess i could i i I think that growing up in a conservative uh very religious bible belt southern place and i i always i always hate describing it that way because i think some people think that's all they picture right when greenville is is you know it, it is progressive you know it might not be the most progressive but it isn't sometimes what people picture of the south
0: yeah and and relative to the areas around it it, it's it's very progressive i mean it's right it's a city and there's a school there and
1: absolutely i think that being surrounded by that uh means that you're you are surrounded by specific uh people and i think this is something i probably could have gained perspective wise in my comedy from maybe anywhere the older i get i realize that but i gained this sense of hypocrisy on what people committed their lives to believing in terms of religion and then how they behaved, what their actions Mm. actually were. I I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and I went to an Episcopalian high school for uh, three years. I failed uh, 10th grade English. So I repeated (laughs) by one point I repeated 10th grade. So I, I went to high school for, uh, five years and I went to public school for the the final two years of of those five years and so I gained a lot of perspective on you know going to private school you can imagine you're not gonna see the uh, economic hardships that other families might face sure. I was actually I probably had the least amount of money I probably came from the least amount of money at the private schools that I went to and then I went to a public school where I suddenly felt like I might actually be rich and I don't know it. And I, (laughs) that was eye-opening for me to realize that it's actually somewhat difficult for you to distinguish where you are in your life financially. And it also opened my eyes to the fact that your perception of yourself is sometimes just defined by what you're, you're around. It might not actually be accurate. You're just comparing yourself to what you have to compare yourself to. Hmm. Um, but comparing yourself in another setting in another society, you might find that you're, you're actually different than you even thought of yeah. yourself. And I think religion wise, I kind of learned that. Uh, I, I think from somewhat of a young age, I never felt as though what I was being taught as a Catholic. I, I had a hard time accepting that, that, was reality and that that was the rules of history that you know if you do these things and you are this type of person right this is what happens when you you die and 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 strangely to bring it back around to what we were talking about before a band like tool kind of opened my mind up to to realize it's okay to not know what happens when we die or, yeah. or to not know what is the point of being being alive or or any of that and i i I think coming from a society of, you know, a lot of religion, definitely racial tension that was merely, you know, it might have progressed and gotten better, but it definitely was by no means as we still know across the country not great. Yeah. But in the South, it, it's a part of the identity, and you don't know that. I, I didn't know till I moved to D.C. that you know some of the things I joked about or said were actually wildly inappropriate and hurtful, not just in race, but stuff that, you know, the statements that I would make that I now understand are, are homophobic. You know, you grow up in a church where people say, well, no, if you're gay, that's wrong. And as a kid, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, if you're, you're an adult, why would I not believe you? Okay. Oh, so gay people are dot, dot, dot. Got it. And then you have to grow up and, and learn through experience that, that makes no sense. Someone just taught you that and you thought that was your reality. I think a lot of my comedy comes from the fact that I'm so frustrated by that misinformation that that molded a version of me that is not who I actually am. Mm. And had I not moved away, and I can't say this because obviously I did move away. I can't say this with any certainty, but. Had I not moved away, would I still be someone who believed those things?
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I identify with a lot of that. Actually, I grew up in Ohio, but raised in a very Catholic family. My, my grandparents, especially on both sides, were, were both very, very Catholic. And, you know, prayed the rosary <laughs> very religiously yeah. and things. And you know, the 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 part for me that was always challenging was like the teachers were just so sure of themselves. Like I would say, you know, they would say, this is the word of God, and we believe that this is what Jesus spoke, and this is the truth, and only Catholicism is the truth. And I'd say, well, but don't you think, like, you know, Jewish people feel just as strongly about their faith, or Buddhist people, or, you know, whatever? Like, how can you be so sure that your way is the right way? And they're just like, well, I just know. And I'm like, but how How do you know? Like, I, I feel like if somebody had just said— I'm not sure, but I, this really feels right to me. I yeah. would have been okay with it. But like just that, like, no, no, this is right. You got to trust us.
1: Yeah, I now believe that just admitting that you don't know is the most honest thing you can do. And I sometimes wonder if, if there is some God out there in the way that people sometimes envision god to be because of their religion is that the ultimate test that god really just wants you to admit that you don't know what the fuck is happening right and if you just admit that god's like good that's all i, I need you to, to drop your ego yeah and just admit that you are floating around and you may never ever ever get the answers to any of these questions but just say i i don't know i really don't know i have no, no clue
0: yeah. And, and just to be open to, to some of the like you said, just the homophobia and things like that. Or I remember like they were trying to recruit us at like age 10 to go like to these anti-abortion rallies and stuff. And I didn't even know what abortion was. I'm just like, oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's a church thing. We're going to hang out. And my mom just very subtly was like, no, we're we're not going to that. <laughs> but like feeling like, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I belong. That's my people are over there doing that thing. I don't know what it means, but yeah. 10 years old, anti-abortion? Sure, that sounds great.
1: Well, you got to also think, like, you know, at 10 years old, you you probably were like, well, what is an abortion? And someone goes, well, they kill babies. And and there is no human being in the world who doesn't hear they kill babies and immediately go, oh, my God,
0: what? I don't want to be for that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because you're also... No one's telling you – they're just saying kill babies. So right. picturing killing babies, you're like, well, that is yeah. crazy. No one breaks down specifically in, in the scientific terms and what truly is happening in an abortion and telling you the other side of what it actually is because and, – and the reason why is because they go, well, he's only 10. And then right. you want to be like, why are you involving him at all? <laughs> right. <laughs> If you can't really tell him what it is, why are you asking him to be a part of it?
0: Yeah, it's all just so, so strange. But uh, um, I, I want to talk to just about uh, Robbie, the, the show you did for Comedy Central. And uh, I don't know if you know, I, t- I talked to Payman Benz uh, like a week yes. ago. And, uh, he, you know, so I got to see the show just in talking to him. And then we were going to talk. I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, I, I had seen all the episodes at that point. But. There is a lot of, there's a lot of religion in that show. Just, you know, it's, it's, you play a a church basketball league coach and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a priest in it. There's scenes happening in confessionals and like in the church, I guess why, you know, coming off of this religious conversation, why, why so much religious symbolism in Robbie?
1: I think, uh, I I think for me, what I kind of wanted to, the world that I wanted to put Robbie in, and who Robbie is, is 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 kind of the 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 discussion we just have about the awakening of yeah. what you grow up in and, and all these things. And I think the only way you can explain that or show that or have people that you really want to get the message relate to it, you have to put the character in that in that setting. And so I kind of wanted to be like, well how do we make a show that's kind of close to my own experience in my life, but is not really about me, but has those ingredients of if someone were like, all right, we're going to tell the Roy Scovel life story. These are things that would, that would definitely be a part of it. So I, I wanted basketball for sure. Cause my family is uh, a, a very big basketball family and religion for sure, because that's such a part of being in the South and, and a part of the family I grew up in. And then having sort of dad, related, you know, issues. I feel like I relate heavily to that in my own interpretation of, of what my relationship with my dad might be. And also I feel like that's probably relatable to every man and woman out there. Everyone's got something in their mind about their dad specifically. It's both moms and dads, but dads is like another puzzle to try to put together. And then, and then having a kid, you know, my daughter was born in 2015 and I was kind of like, I don't want to tell the story of an infant. I kind of want to tell the story of a new dad from a different perspective and in a different way. So I think it was kind of trying to be autobiographical without being autobiographical, I guess.
0: Yeah, and and it's not in a mocking way either. I mean, as you say, just sort of, getting people to think differently like the church isn't the punchline it's just kind of a background
1: yeah i never i didn't we didn't want to uh myself and and everybody involved in the show all of the creators and writers and producers we never wanted to punch down i i you know i'm from the south and i i have a lot of pride about the south i i really love the south and i think what aggravates me is anyone in the south that actually uh you know perpetuates the the uh image of the south that people have you sometimes you get into a conversation and you say the south people are immediately thinking racism and while that's historically valid i I just kind of wanted to be like you know it's not that's not the whole thing that's not the whole place that's not the whole history and that's not the whole present day feeling of it and so i wanted to really showcase that in a way i wanted to have race be a part of the show but Race that we don't talk about. I wanted to show people a normal world where people live in diverse social circles and they don't feel the need to talk about it all the time because I'd like to society get to a place where it isn't special or unique that people of different races (laughs) uh, all mesh together and just exist in one one kind of uh society
0: yeah it's interesting too, just sort of that that backdrop of race and and sort of in the same way that religion plays into the show that there are these kind of moments that you know like the ice cream parlor that that Robbie works at it turns out was was founded by the clan, or you know right. his, his son is is looking at schools and it's on a former plantation like just sort of balancing that where I think about too, there, there's that line, you know, so she plays plays um, the mother of your child. And, you know, you guys have this, this interracial son. And at one point uh, she's hanging out with all the other white parents and they're kind of laughing with her and they say, you know, Oh, you're like, you're like the black Ellen. And she goes, well, you can just say Ellen, <laughs> you know, like it, yes, it, it's a small moment, but it's, it's just kind of always there in the background too, the sort of racial tension.
1: Yeah, yes. And uh, I we, we had said that too. I was like, and there's no, from the jokes of wanting to have things that are edgier, like if you are going to make race jokes or religious jokes, we never, we for sure never wanted them to be um, offensive humor uh, at all. I just don't. And, you know, people do that, whatever. It's fine. People enjoy it, whatever. It, it just isn't, it doesn't match myself and the other people working on the show. But we definitely wanted to have statements and we definitely wanted to like slide stuff in there that maybe people would, you know, maybe see that specific moment you're talking about. Maybe someone watches that and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Why? Why do I also perceive it that way? Why don't I also just go, oh, yeah, you can just say Ellen. So it's almost like, well, how do we how do we write a joke? But then maybe somebody walks away from that joke going, oh, that's actually a good point.
0: Yeah, no. And I think you guys, you handled that well. I'm really curious too, just uh, sort of the writing process on that show. Like you got you you got greenlit for a pilot before it was picked up for a series. Right. And then there was like seven more after that. And then there's kind of the question of if there's a season two or not. Just sort of writing in sort of a a start and stop fashion like that, not knowing how long you're going to have to tell an arc like what are what are the challenges in that and how do you how do you leave it open-ended so that you know if it ends today everyone's satisfied but if it gets picked up there's room for more
1: yeah i it's very tough it's it's very uh it's very tough to do and it's also unfortunate to like have to do it you kind of wish i really wish american television was more this uh you know, maybe fewer episodes, more, more like the British, where it's like fewer episodes, but then you kind of have a guarantee of two or three seasons. Because then I think you can really tell a story uh, that brings closure to the audience and to the characters. Um, in this particular case, our show was going to be way more serialized. That was our intention was to really tell stories where every episode sort of had a cliffhanger. And uh, Comedy Central really was like it needs to not be serialized. And they do have a point that if someone were to just jump in on episode four, there's a good chance, given the fact that this is not a streaming show, right? Uh, at least at the time it wasn't going to be on YouTube, it was going to be on TV, there's a good chance they wouldn't be able to catch up with one, two, and three, you know, by going to the <laughs> Comedy Central app and trying to figure out how to see the other shows to catch up with the story. Right. Very difficult. So we had to rethink how were we, how were these episodes going to be standalone? And then on top of it, Comedy Central really wanted to have a cliffhanger at the end of the first season, which is also very difficult to do, knowing that you aren't telling this sort of serialized story. And uh, I got to say, I give all of the credit to Anthony King and, uh, and all of the writers that we had in the writer's room, because they really, you know, worked with that note and were able to, to, to keep the episodes standalone and then still kind of have Robbie have this overarching uh, storyline throughout the whole season where he does kind of become a better person and he does kind of have uh, an awakening. And then it ends with him either learning that lesson and who knows what he's going off to. uh, But also it really sets us up nicely for a season two to, Get away from basketball, perhaps, and right. have him to explore some other part of his of his life.
0: Yeah, it's a it's interesting. I'm curious sort of with that cliffhanger where it's going to go, you know, after this, because it will even just that transition from, you know, he works in this one ice cream parlor for the first four or five episodes. And then that gets shut down and he ends up in this kind of higher end uh, ice cream place with the same, you know, it's the same woman he's worked with the whole time. Like that that transition happened so smoothly over the course of, you know, an eight episode arc was kind of like, oh, yeah, I could see these characters feel real enough and have an interesting enough backstory that you can kind of you can move them into a bunch of different scenarios and not feel like, you know, wait, how did they get here? They're not doing basketball anymore. What's happening? You know, like it. There's a lot of richness to it. It, It's written really well.
1: We were looking for was to try to figure out how do you kind of follow that always sunny and Philadelphia model of solidifying these characters so that then episode to episode you can interchange the characters to be like, well, who's going on the A story adventure together and who's going to be the B story adventure and and make it so that all of the characters make sense collaborating uh, with each other so that. Anyone watching might be like, oh, it's going to be Ava and Coach. For instance, that's where in in episode uh, six, I think it is, we really tried to to branch out and be like, okay, so this storyline, it's just Coach and Ava. We need to start separating everybody from Robbie. Robbie does not need to be the center of everybody's universe that informs their decisions. We need to get away from him so that their lives are enough. So we we were like, well, let's give ourselves five episodes to really solidify that and then starting with episode 6, let's really start to make the show where Robbie is not the sun. He's yeah. just also one of the the planets and that's really our intention for season 2. was like, all right, now now we've established all the characters and their relationships and we've established this world that we kind of know of because of Robbie, now let's really get to know them individually, there is a chance, you know, we don't get a season two, we don't ever get to do that, which I think is unfortunate, because we really set it up to make season two even better than than season one, which I already really like as a as a season.
0: Yeah. And, And do you have a sense yet of sort of, you know, just with everything shut down, like when when a decision will be made about being greenlit and even when production could return when you'd be comfortable with it returning?
1: We know that it won't be at Comedy Central. They are going unscripted. So our situation with this particular show is to get as many eyes on it as possible and try to get as much positive feedback and, and get, you know, people to write reviews and, and really promote it because Comedy Central also isn't putting any advertising money into it so it's really this unfortunately it's this show that was born at a time when comedy central decided to rebrand and here we've made this uh decent show that so many people will maybe never never know about that i think is actually entertaining and good and even if we never got to make a season two i'd love it for a lot of eyes to get on it but yeah it'll, it'll really take a place wanting to buy it and and make more episodes
0: yeah it's so weird too, just like the reality of TV now that like there used to just, there used to be a TV season in the fall and, and, you know, yeah. a handful of networks that would pick up a show and I, there's the possibility, I suppose, that, you know, two years down the road, a Hulu or a Netflix or somebody could say, you know what, what was, what was that Rory Scoville thing? Let, let's, let's start that up again. You know, like it's just That's such right. a weird, weird reality we live in now. I want to ask one last thing, just sort of on, on your up and sort of going off the writing process, like. When I watch your, your comedy, so much of it is is kind of based on on taking these detours and these kind of non-sequiturs that, that turn into something. And they often feel improvised or sort of played off the crowd. Like, when you do a set, how how written is your set and how much are you improvising or how open are you to improvising when you're up on stage?
1: I, I'm super open to it because those are my favorite moments in any show. I, I love not... I love also, I mean, there, there, there is a similar joy in not knowing what is about to happen and trying to figure it out and make it fun. And then there's also just as, as an equal amount of fun for a performer to have a joke that they know crushes yeah. and you can give it to the crowd. It's so fun to perform and add to it and build on it. Um, I, I believe in, in my own trying to step outside of myself and look back, I think that a lot of the moments in my show appear to be improvised because most of my jokes are born out of improvisation. Yeah. And I think because that's how it's born, I kind of continually perform it kind of the way that I discovered it. Uh, and so it uh, it kind of, I think it appears almost like a an unintentional magic trick. It just kind of makes it look more mysterious and, and impromptu than it is. But because I also perform where I'm very open to improv in the moment, someone would see a show where I am definitely improvising. And I think that masks it even more. Not that that's my goal. I I don't really care if someone knows that I've pre-written everything or or not. But I think that's why it gives that illusion unintentionally. Because I, I don't really sit down and write out jokes. I sometimes will. I'll get into a rant and I'll sit and I'll write a whole paragraph. And then I'll go on stage and and work on it but i do more of my writing on stage
0: yeah and it feels like so much of it is so much of your comedy is kind of based on on little things you know in in your special for netflix just sort of the business you do with the the members only jacket like that just becomes a whole thing that like you know there's not a lot of hey did you ever notice or what's the deal with like it's it's just it's performative and fun and it feels like you're just kind of kind of bouncing off the audience and and picking up on their energy and kind of swerving based on that in the moment. Is that, is that fair?
1: I I think that's very fair. I I think a lot of that comes from having learned improv, right? You know, taking improv classes right as I started to do open mics back in DC and in 2004, I was doing those things at the same time. So naturally they each kind of informed uh, the other. And then it's, and then it's a matter of discovering Comedians like Todd Glass and Brody Stevens, and someone like Andy Kinler. I, I could name Eddie Pepita. I could name so many comics that Maria Bamford uh, easily. I, so many comics that they go on stage, and it just isn't the same kind of music that a lot of times becomes mainstream in stand up, where it is this sort of setup punchline, which is fine and good and obviously successful for a reason, you know, Todd Glass goes on stage and is just a hurricane of crazy, weird, silly, funny. Yeah. And when you see that for the first time, you realize, well, I guess that really is what I paid for. I did pay to come in here and laugh. So whenever people critique comedy, I always I find it fascinating because that's an interesting thing to critique. But to me, it's as simple as, well, it's either funny or it's not funny. Anything else outside of that is just sort of a meaningless breakdown of what <laughs> what what I'm watching. Um, if someone tells me it's funny, I go great. Someone says it's not, you know, then then maybe I'll check it out. If someone says it's not funny, I'm almost more inclined to check it out because <laughs> it's so subjective. You know right. what I mean? I go, oh, you don't think it's funny? I bet I find it very funny.
0: Let me see what I can find in that. Yeah. There there was yeah. a, a bit, I, I think I read in an interview where you said something like you're comfortable if only like 20% of the audience at any given point is laughing and that, that 20% is going to shift throughout the show too, right? Like you're not trying to kill the room with every single I, joke. I,
1: you know, it is fun to do that. But it, it I, I see comics go on stage. Ted Alexandru is a comic that I've had to follow. Uh, and, and not not that I want to, and I hope to never, ever follow him again. Um, he he can crush every joke like it is his closing joke. He is a he is a master at it, and he is so paced and it's beautiful. It's like just watching this beautiful art happen in front of you. yeah and and when you see someone like that, you go, "Oh, fuck, I wish I could do that. But sometimes you have to accept that that's just not what you do. And it isn't like, well, if I really work hard, maybe I'll be able to perform like Ted Alexandro. That's not true. I mean, I could paint every single day of my life. It doesn't mean I'll ever be able to paint like so-and-so. Right. So you have to figure out, well, what is the thing that, that you do? What is the thing that you bring to the table? And I think at a certain point, I just had to accept that. I was just like, well, what makes me laugh? And if that makes the whole room laugh, well, that's awesome but there are jokes specifically in my act that you know maybe 10 people laugh at and i i like knowing where those t- i would never not tell that joke because it doesn't kill i always tell it because to me it's more like a radar of who are the 10 people in this room that are really on the same page as me right and then with this next joke if 50 people laugh okay those people are sort of on the same page with me and then if i tell a joke that everybody laughs at I would be like, okay, so this joke is maybe more for everybody. But if I got to be honest, I really love those 10 people the most. Right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're on the same wavelength as you, so why not?
1: (laughs) Right there is why my show Robbie is on YouTube.
0: Well, I hope more people see it because it is on YouTube, it's streaming, it's free, and uh there's 8 episodes and yeah, I watched them all. I think they're great and I hope I hope somebody picks it up, you know, because it, it would be a shame just... to and and end it like this.
1: I I agree and and who knows what production world will look like in this in this world of COVID and and everything, but uh yeah, I I hope we at least get a chance to make a second season because I I I really believe that we could then cement three more seasons after people saw that second season and it was out there. I really think we'd have that if this were, you know, advertised. So yeah. um, you you talking about it and even wanting to talk about it is a, a huge benefit to me and the show. So I'm very grateful.
0: Yeah, no, of course. And, and it's a show too, that like that first season is solid. Like you, you watch so many, sh- you know, Parks and Recreation is a good example. Like it takes a good solid, you know, 10, 12 episodes before the show really finds its footing. And like Robbie, I feel like it's just it's it's firing on all cylinders, you know, right out right out of the gate. And just, you know, yeah, I think yeah, I think
1: knowing knowing that we wouldn't fully know what this show is, but let's still try to be as funny as possible and really tell good stories and have heart, even knowing that maybe we're not necessarily making the show we all pictured. And then I think because of it. Because that was our kind of motive, I think that's what helped us discover the show. Where We are like, oh, well, just following those three things kind of helped us find out that, oh, we are making the show that, that we want to make. Yeah. Whether it's the one you pictured or not, we, we found the one we want to make.
0: All right, Rory Scoville. That was good. Lot, lots of stuff there. Go check out Robbie. It's on the Comedy Central YouTube channel. All eight episodes are streaming for free right now. And you heard Rory there, tell your friends, you know, let let, let them know if it's a show you like, because uh, it's it's a great show and it would be a shame to end it after eight episodes. So hopefully people watch it. Hopefully someone picks it up because I want to know what happens. I'm curious. And if you haven't had a chance yet, go listen to my interview with Payman Benz, too, because Payman uh, also cares a lot about that show. And we talk a lot more about Robbie in that episode. So Go check it out. All right. New show on Monday. I am very excited for that one. I'm talking to Marin Hinkle, who plays Rose Weissman on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's uh, Rachel Brosnahan's mother on the show, Tony Shalhoub's wife. And Marin is just such a wonderful, wonderful, sweet person. I had a really great talk with her. I'm so excited to share that with you guys. So I hope you'll come back on Monday and, uh, and listen to Maren. It's a good one. Hey, And I know it's July 4th weekend. I know everybody wants to get away. I know it's a weird year to not have a little vacation, but do what you can just to, to stay sane. Stay home. Don't go out and, you know, crowd the beaches or pile into a pool party or whatever. Just stay with your family. Stay safe. It's all we can do right now, right? All right. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me a note. Let me know what you think. Leave a rating, leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Have a great long weekend. Enjoy the fourth. I'll see you Monday. Stay safe.